Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. If you're a sales letter looking to take your leadership to a whole new level, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be exploring tips, techniques, and strategies to help you take your leadership to the exceptional level and allow you to enjoy more money, more meaning, and better sales results. Welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Leader Podcast. Darren Mitchell here on a beautiful Monday and uh, have the pleasure today of speaking with Mr. Joel Stevenson all the way from Boston in the US. And it's actually, what, about 7 p.m. on a Sunday night, Joel, right now. Yep, which is why it's so dark. <laughs> and yet you've got these beautiful lights behind you. And if you just move your head to a little bit, there's this, <laughs> it's yeah. just, it's very angelic. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. So, Joel, you are the GA director of, um, sorry, the general manager of direct brands at an organization called Vendasta. Um, have a fairly extensive experience in sales. So, also a podcast yourself uh, with the podcast named Hard Sell. So, uh, really looking forward to this conversation. As always, with this particular podcast, uh, we don't know in which direction that's going to go. But the direction is always the direction that it needs to go. So um, strap in. If you listen to this as a first-time listener, welcome. And of course, if you are a returning listener, welcome back. So Joel, before we jump into the topic, uh, as I always do with uh, a lot of my guests, love to know a little bit about you for the for the listeners in terms of the Joel Stevenson story, um, where you've come from, what your general background is, and what your what brings you to sales leadership today. Yeah, the the thumbnail is I started my career in sales uh, a long time ago, um, worked for a telecommunications company and ended up working for a customer of mine that we got kind of sort of swept up in the whole dot-com era. And so you know, I had a chance to do a bunch of different sales roles back then, uh, then ended up, uh, you know, had... You know, we had the dot-com bus and then we had, you know, 9-11 here in the U.S. and the 2002 financial crisis. And so I ended up um, taking some time off, going back and getting my MBA and then did, did a finance concentration there, did some sales consulting work for a while, and then eventually landed myself at uh, a company called Wayfair, um, which which did have, a, a for a very short time, an Australian presence, um, okay. Uh, but is mostly uh, mostly here in the U.S. Um, you know, big uh, e-commerce retailer, and I, I did a bunch of different jobs there. But the last job I did there was I had set up a B two B unit of the company, so selling to you know, interior designers and contractors, builders, that sort of thing. And we we grew that to uh, you know, over four hundred million over a few years, and uh, was pretty exciting. And and I, but eventually Wayfair just got a little bit too big for me, and so I wanted to do something earlier stage again. And we had some investors in common with another company called Guessware, which was in the sales technology space. And I had gotten excited about uh, technology as applied to the sales productivity problem at Wayfair because that's a lot of what we did to drive productivity. And so it was fun to go from a a buyer of that tech to a seller of that tech. And yeah, you know, that's been the last, um, you know, almost seven years and <clears throat> company was acquired a year ago by Vendasta, which is more in sort of the local, uh, small local business marketing, um, segment. Uh, and we're, we're, we're adding on to, to their platform. Nice. Nice. And what is it about? You mentioned a couple of things. You love the, um, the startup, uh, startup mold. What what's what do you love about that? Because a lot of listeners who um who have been part of startups or are in the startup phase now. Yeah, I 
you know, you're just a little bit, I think t- typically you're just a little bit closer to the action. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as companies get bigger, it's, it's difficult to have a company get bigger and not end up with, uh, you know, just more process and procedures. And it's not that they're bad. It's just sort of a necessary evil as, as part of a bigger company. And then I think oftentimes like the people that show up in later stage company formation are not necessarily the people that I enjoy working with as much. I'm, I, I think I probably enjoy more of the, you know, kind of the roll up your sleeves risk taker uh, types versus the, the sort of the more corporate, you know, played it, you know, straight down the middle of the fairway your, your whole life kind of a thing. So that that's a little bit of a personal preference uh, for me. Are you saying that some of the big corporates are corporate stiffs, Joel? <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's one way of putting it, you know, <laughs> Stiff as a that's a word you could use. Yeah. Well, I got I I, I tend to agree. And look, my background is in is in big business to business corporate as well. So you mentioned telecommunications. I was at two of the largest Australian telecommunications companies in in my career, and uh, they, for all intents and purposes, they wanted to become more and more entrepreneurial in terms of the ideas they're bringing to market, and sometimes the products and services to market, but unfortunately hampered by a lot of bureaucracy by a lot of the corporate stiffs that said no no you have to do it this way that way which stifled a lot of innovation unfortunately so um i can understand why you'd like to go back and i guess be closer to the ground level in relation to a lot of this stuff yeah i'm actually one of the things that um i've, I've announced um i'm leaving vendas at the end of the year so this is not you know this is not a everything everybody inside the company knows this and one of the things i'm going to do next is actually write a book on what I'm calling entrepreneurship, which is how you, you know, try to uh, create entrepreneurial activities inside of bigger companies that want to do that. Like, what do you have to do as an individual? You know, what are the conditions you have to create as a company to do that? Which I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting area. It's um, it is actually, and there's, I've worked with a lot of people who um, do have that entrepreneurial flair that they're very and they're they're great they're great people if they're allowed to i guess thrive within the the big corporate structure um for a lot of them though they're they're quite stifled and hence find themselves doing things outside of work or they end up leaving because of that lack of um for a better term um rope to be able to create stuff because a lot of the processes won't won't let them do that so that 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 would be an interesting uh an interesting book to read we need- yeah, hopefully, hopefully I can get it written. Because <laughs> we think about, and I'd love to talk about sales and some of the key challenges mm-hmm. you've experienced over your career as well, because I think a lot of large organizations suffer from lack of um, innovation, lack of creativity, because they are too regimented in in the in the following of the process, because we've always done it this way, so let's not change it because we are so big and there's too many stakeholders to manage. When you think about innovation, we need to be more disruptive, which means we need people thinking more in an entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial fashion. Yeah, right. Yeah, and we've we've had the the good fortune of being able to see this sort of live and with data. Yes, where we have you know thousands of teams that that use the software, and part of what yes where allows you to do is to share things that are working across a team so whether it's templates or campaigns or you know attachments piece of content etc and and one of the things that we've found is that teams that do a, a, a high amount of sharing um, outperform the teams that don't by very significant margins um, you know sometimes a, you know two to three times better 
uh, better performance and, and growth rates. And it's, you know, it sort of makes sense because if you were to think about, you know, if you had a sales team, say of 50 and you allow everybody to, you know, think a little bit on their own and try to figure stuff out. If one person figures out, oh, well, this is now a better way to go from, you know, step one of our process to step two of our process because we follow up more often or we follow up in different ways or we follow up with different people or with different content, you know, whatever. There's a million different permutations of, um, of ways you could do this. But um, that, you know, that one insight can then get shared across the team and your whole team can get better. And, it, and what we see with some of our bigger customers and, and what I've seen over the course of my career is a little bit of like, well, we don't really want the reps to innovate. What we really want is for the reps to, uh, you know, just listen to our smart operations people that, you know, will control things from on high. And, and that, that can work in, in certain models, but I think it, a lot of times it, uh, it doesn't work as well as I think people are hope, hoping it's going to. Yeah. And you mentioned before that as the, um, as the, I guess the CEO of Wayfair, you took it to a 440 million um, revenue. What were some of the key lessons there that, I mean, obviously there's some stuff that's happened that has now been the catalyst for the, for the book you're going to write. Um, yeah. Which by the way, you have to do it now because you've actually declared to everybody that you're going to be writing a book. Yeah, I mean that's a great that's a great way to that's a great way to force yourself. I think. Um, but what are some things? I know you mentioned um, Yesware as well in terms of sales technologies. What are some of the key lessons that you learned going through that process that um, has allowed that company to grow so quickly, but also set a foundation and that bigger companies should be able to to learn from. Yeah, there were a, a few things that worked really well for us. I thought one of one of the things that worked very well was we 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 made a real investment in specialization. So we didn't treat all. I mean, many of the customers were similar in the sense that most of them, you know, by and large, were smaller businesses. You know, in in America, interior designers and contractors usually aren't big businesses. It's often yeah. individuals or, or small groups, and. Uh, but you know they end up having pretty different needs in terms of um, how they go to market and and how their process works and you know the items that they're interested in and how they want help like all those things end up being a little bit differently different and so we we invested pretty early on in serving those customers different and, and one way we'd serve them different is we would give them account managers that only dealt with that type of customer and so they ended up having you know sort of figuring things out um, and, and being a little bit uh, have a bit more empathy for the customer you know anticipating questions and, and challenges a little bit better um, and then uh, and then that sort of went backwards through to the website experiences that we built even all the way through to advertising you know we were doing customer acquisition like the, the whole thing was um, was somewhat vertical specific that allowed us to be pretty efficient <clears throat> with our advertising um, and when people showed up they you know even though we had you know very disparate customer types in the funnel, they showed up. I think they sort of felt like, oh, like this is where I belong, like with people that are like me and they, they understand me and they speak my language and all that stuff. So that that was really a big one. Um, another one was we just made, as I mentioned earlier, huge investments in technology and, and systems and, and process. And we were very ruthless with prioritization in terms of who we were calling, what order we were calling them in, um, cadences, and you know, constantly testing and iterate to try to get to the right thing. And then as we found things that worked, we, we were able to scale them pretty quickly because we had a good uh, sort of management infrastructure and, and technology infrastructure um, from which to do that. But, you know, we had to just give you an idea. We, we at one point set up a system whereby 
um, we uh, had, we would shoot, so we, we had a, a group of reps in uh, sort of the middle part of the US and they were doing most of our kind of outbound contacts to try to get customers just in, interested in the program. We didn't, it didn't cost anything to join, but we just tried to get them to sign up. And then once we got them to sign up, then normally we, we were able to, to build a revenue stream there. And what we ended up doing was having them basically push a button in Salesforce every time they had to, they were going to do with it. We called the next action button. And this yeah. was before this was sort of sexy, I think. And, um, and it would choose from about, I don't know, half a million available tasks. And it would try to choose the best thing for them to do in that moment. And, uh, and that, you know, it worked, it worked well. <laughs> there were two, you know, two couple of downsides to it. One was, one time we took down our entire Salesforce region because we had coded some things incorrectly. Um, so that wasn't great. And, and when it, when we had issues, it's like, then you had a bunch of reps, that like didn't really know that, that one set of reps, it was really, I think maybe a little bit too robotic, uh, sort of the opposite of what we we're, we we're talking about earlier before. And then the other, the other potential downside to it was that, um, we, you know, it, it just wasn't really the best job, you know, to do. And so it was really like that, that, that was not at all a bench for any other part of the company. It was just sort of like, you could do this job for a period of time until you got, you know, probably bored or wanted to do something else. And so there was sort of a constant rotating door of, uh, of people, but, but it, it, it worked exceedingly well. That's an, that's another interesting thing with uh, a lot of organizations, irrespective of size is the attrition. So, mm -hmm. um, but still, through that process, you're able to build a sustainably strong business because that was a, a, a pretty rapid growth. Um, did you end up finding that over time, the more that you streamlined some of those those coding errors uh, and the processes that you would still you're able to attract, I guess, the perfect um, salesperson and perfect account manager for that particular organization to give it that longevity? Yeah, we, I mean, it, it depended a little bit uh, on the, the part of the, the sales process that you're talking about and who we were working with, but we, you know, a lot of what ended up happening was we just started with stuff that was kind of simple to do, or that we could just brute force. Like we used to just run all these SQL queries to try to figure out what customers we should call. And then it went on a spreadsheet to somebody who would just like start dialing down the spreadsheet. You know, eventually it ended up being data scientists who were building these like elaborate, you know, black box ranking algorithms that then immediately got fed to Salesforce, which then had this giant, you know, uh, optimization algorithm that eventually made it to a rep. So that, that ended up being pretty pretty sophisticated in the end relative to where we started and and on the sales side you know i think in that when we got into account management which is a lot of what our sales really were was was account management um and trying to build uh, uh you know increase sort of a, a you know a, a book of business with with folks um you know there we were able to get people through from you know kind of an, maybe an entry level role that didn't have a lot of experience to eventually managing bigger and bigger accounts and so our yeah. you know our biggest you know, our, our bigger account managers might have had, you know, maybe, you know, five to 30 accounts or something like that, that would be billing, you know, maybe $10 million a year or something like that. And they were integral to, um, to these businesses. They, you know, they, we would often have, you know, designer sales, like I couldn't grow my business without you guys. Um, and so they, they really became sort of an extended part of the team. And, and I, that, that really helped with, longevity, I think, because we, we gave people an ability to grow their career, to grow their earnings. And I think you know, not only be part of a, a Wayfair group that was doing pretty well, but also feel like they were like part of their customers extended team. And and so then there's still reps that are that are there today from when I was there, 
you know, decade ago or whatever. So, wow, because one of the one of the things that many companies grapple with is the value proposition to the marketplace and why customers would want to do business with you. And I say to sales teams all the time that. You know, you can drink you can drink the Kool-Aid as much as you like, right? But if you understand your customers actually don't want your product and they're not actually looking for your product, what they're looking for is a solution, we can actually start to flip the conversation completely around. If you look back, and sometimes you can't get, I guess, insights until you look back in terms of what you did and how it evolved, what was it about what you guys did to build the business so quickly that sort of resonated to say, this is why customers do business with us and now you take that forward and, and ultimately probably why Vendasta ended up buying you guys anyway. Um, what were some of the key value propositions that customers saw in you? Because this is what a lot of sales leaders in particular don't spend enough time on. They get so caught up in their own product, their own service, and they go out and flog that. They don't necessarily sit back and think, well, why should a customer and why does a customer want to do business with us? Yeah. Have you done that sort yeah. of analysis? What did you learn? Yeah, it's it's you know, on the on the Wayfair side, I think a lot of it was we had this premise that we could win on service. And the the general idea was that, you know, we were selling, you know, effectively commodities at that point. We were really more, you know, we looked more like a distributor, really. Like we weren't selling unique products necessarily. We were just selling, you know, same stuff as everybody else. And uh, we had a little bit of more sophisticated supply chain. We had a pretty pretty good web experience. But at the end of the day, we we tried to be the company that was going to help these customers look, you know, look good in front of their clients more of the time, and just be the backstop and make it easy, just as easy as possible for them to get the information they need and, and to be able to do the work that they really want to do. And that yeah. that that you know, with that kind of simple insight, along with you know a few of the other things that we did, I think was was a lot of what ended up working. Um, and, you know, we had so many, uh, you know, kind of people behind the curtain doing stuff that our website and our tech couldn't do, you know, especially in the early days, but the customer didn't know. And, you know, and, and, and oftentimes when we would get an opportunity to win the business, it was because something else had gone wrong for the customer. Um, and so, we, you know, we were able to take advantage of those situations because we had, you know, in America, we had product all over the place. We could get to the customer very quickly and maybe couldn't yeah. get otherwise. So like, well, I wouldn't have used you, but you're the only person who can get in here in two days. And that's what we use to, to then try to say, do, you know, do well with that. And then, you know, earn the, earn the shot to, to get another one. And then just trying to keep doing right by the customer. And, and on the Yesware side, it was a little bit of a different situation where a lot of the way that Yesware grew, especially in the early days, was through product-led growth. And so we had a, um, a, a product that you know you could use for free and it it uh it utilized a chrome extension it worked in gmail or you could use an outlook plugin um uh or, or outlook add-in for for outlook and we we sort of grew very quickly by being i think in many ways easy to work with and so you know you could try it you could figure it out you know we would you know try to work with people on you know very, you know, simple pilots and proof of concepts. It's just really, you know, the ability to tr try to prove it out before you, uh, before you made a big investment. And that's really how we grew, um, especially in the early days is we get a handful of reps that would try it at a company that have some success. They'd share it with somebody else. You know, we might, you know, call up to, you know, more senior decision maker and say, Hey, like a bunch of people mm -hmm. are using this, like, do you, you know, do you want to learn a little bit more? And, and in the end, it was really the, 
the the product that drove all that growth and you know and, and some good sales you know kind of backing it up but we we almost flipped it on its head where which interesting for a sales technology company to not be heavily heavily sales led but we were actually you know sales oftentimes was the second you know sort of ship that landed versus the versus the first one in, in that instance yeah it's interesting and, and through that process the and would you call it hyper growth hyper growth uh, there was a period of that. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. you know, it, it, it wasn't always that way, but there, there wasn't some early days like that. Yeah. So what we're, cause a lot of, a lot of uh, people listening to this are working for organizations that are very in various stages of their growth. And one of the things to always be conscious of is having the right processes in place to support that growth. Um, looking back with those, with those great times where you were actually accelerating forward, what were some of the challenges that you had to, uh, deal with or the lessons that you learned that um, has helped you then contain uh, maintain a level of consistency moving forward into the next evolution yeah i mean there's i mean one way i like to think about this is um as a series of constraints and there's a there's a really good book actually a supply chain book called the goal by this guy you like gold rat which doesn't have anything to do with sales in theory but i think actually has a lot to do with sales um or, or at least sort of building a a high performing sales organization because you're always going to have some bottleneck to that you have to remove whether it's you know you don't have enough leads at the top of the funnel you don't do a good enough job with your leads or you've got some part of your sales process isn't working right or you don't have enough reps or the reps aren't trading there's, there's going to be something that causes you to not uh grow as fast as you could in a in, in a perfect scenario and i think a big part of trying to drive growth is, is uncovering what your bottleneck is and then working yeah. to, to remove that bottleneck. And at, on the Wayfair side, when we really started to get scale, um, we at that time had, you know, very heavy, um, uh, you know, account management focus, as I mentioned. And so people ended up becoming the constraint, at least in, in the way that we wanted to cover it. And part of the challenge was how do you hire reps that quickly and get them trained and get them onboarded and get them working their accounts when the numbers that we were doing were insane. And we were, you know, we were tripling, you know, or more year over year. And oh. so the rep classes kept getting bigger and bigger. Like we started hiring, you know, 50 a month at one point. Wow. And, uh, you know, you, we had, you know, maybe a hundred in the company and all of a sudden, like we got three hiring classes lined up behind them of, of 50 each. So, that that just required a bunch of new things, uh, you know, new ways of doing business, new ways of hiring uh, to try to get folks in the door. And then, you know, and then one of the challenges that we had was we missed a forecast and we had a couple of things like we had a, a one of our best performing Facebook campaign just like fell off the face of the earth. We had a couple other things go on. And then all of a sudden you end up with, you know, we ended up with way too many people and we had to lay a bunch off and that was uh, extremely painful. Um, and, uh, you know, very humbling experience because, you know, we thought we were the masters of the universe and all of a sudden, you, you know, you very quickly realize that you're not. Um, and then you, you know, you impact a bunch of people's lives because you, you know, some things were unforeseen, but I think there were, there were some things that, uh, that we could have done better as well. But, you know, the, we adapted and we got the thing right size and the thing continued to grow. I mean, I think they're, I think it's, you know, one and a half or $2 billion division now. So it's like, they've, they definitely, you know, have, um, you know, overcame a lot of those, uh, those early challenges. And, and on the, on the yesware side, you know, a lot of our challenges have come from, you know, uh, very intense competitive pressure have come from, 
you know, continuing to try to advance the ball on the technology side. We, we sort of live in some ways as a, you know, a guest, you know, whether invited or uninvited inside of other platforms like Gmail and Outlook. And so there's constant changes to that. And so we've really had to, it's really been about constant adaptation um, on the SR side, both from a a technology perspective and how does the software work, but also that can change your go to market pretty quickly, especially when you're product led. And so constantly trying to adapt and tinker with a go to market to, uh, to, to adapt to, to changing conditions. I know you, one of the topics you talk about is um, enabling you to expand. Well, how do you expand your sales reach? And what I hear then is a lot of adaptability, flexibility, and moving moving quickly. Are there any are there any key lessons or key ideas that um, you've learned that others can sort of learn from that enables us to expand the sales reach? Yeah. Well, I think the. One one hard fought lesson I think um, that that maybe doesn't get talked about as much as as maybe it should is it's generally easy to put more volume out into the world. Um, it, like it actually doesn't take that much intelligence to be a moronic spammer. It turns out, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, tools like Yesware will you know like we can be used for good or evil. Like you can spam the world, or I mean, there's tools that are better at it than than we are for for pure spam. I'll say, but you know, but you you can use tools like ours to put a lot of volume out in the world should you choose to do that. And I think with you know, there's um you know, you get some initial gains. If you're, if you're really not that efficient and you're not putting much volume out into the world at all, when you do that first kind of step up into, you know, what greater volumes of activity are normally going to get, you know, see some decent results for that. And a lot of times then people are like, oh, well, more is better. And what ends up happening is you can um, easily measure the positives. So, you know, just give you an example. Let's say, I, you know, I send out, you know, an email to 10,000 people today. It takes me, you know, five minutes to do it. And I get one person that responds back and says, oh yeah, I'd love to talk to you. I think, oh man, that's great. Like I got, you know, five minutes of work. I got a person that, that wants to talk to me. Yeah. Um, that you, you see the, those positive metrics. The, the negative metrics are much more difficult to measure. So I maybe pissed off 9,099 people. I maybe got marked as spam by, you know, 5,000 of them, or I got, you know, some some other you know negative connotation associated with me or my company, and then yeah. when I go to send the next ten thousand, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. And so there's a there's a real balance that you have to strike when you're trying to go for more volume. And you know what we try to tell people is to you know really try to keep the prospect in mind and and make sure that you're adding value with every exchange. You know it's like the the you know there was a period of time I think maybe in you know. 2013, 2014, where some of these models, like, you know, there's a book called Predictable Revenue, which is like, you basically just, you know, email every executive at the company and ask them to say, like, give me, introduce me to the right person. Like those, some of those tactics did work for a period of time, but it, it, it's very difficult to, to have those tactics work anymore, particularly now that that volume is getting easier and easier with, you know, AI and, and other tools and, you know, uh, you know, contact information being generally available. It's, it, it's tough. I think that the, the bar has gone up for quality and, uh, and I think what you want to do is use tools to be as efficient as you can possibly be. Um, mm. But, you know, make reserving time to do the things that you're good at as a salesperson and that adds value, asking questions, understanding, you know, what value you can bring to an organization and, and not going crazy with the, you know, with with just the pure volume approach. But Joel, isn't sales all about numbers? That's what I hear all the time. It's all about numbers. Just make more calls, send more emails, send more LinkedIn messages. 
Well, there's, there's, <clears throat> there's two sides of it. Um, there's, uh, there's the numbers of how many people am I putting in my funnel? And there's the, there's a side of it, which is how many of those people convert into close one sales at the end of the day. And, you know, if we were to think about things in the simplest possible terms, we could say you could either spend your time putting more people in at the top of the funnel, or you could spend all of your, you could spend all of your time improving your funnel. You know, obviously you'd have to, you have to do a little bit of both. And I think what, what people oftentimes do is they end up, um, spending more time on the top of the funnel necessarily versus like really finding out like what are the problems with my current sales process and why aren't I converting enough customers? And, and I, you know, I think the world is moving a little bit more towards an opt-in approach. And you, mm -hmm. if you looked at, at funnels, like, you know, like what a lot of people will build with, you know, social media funnels, you might, you know, advertise to somebody and they click on a form that then allows you to contact them. That's expensive. And, you know, part of what might allow you to outbid somebody else for a piece of ad inventory is your confidence in your ability to convert that amount of money into a closed one sale at, at, at the end of that point. And your ability to convert those, those sales that are those prospects at a higher percentage and for more dollars then earns you the right to go, unless you want to piss money away, which a lot of people do seem to want to do, but then earns you the right to go spend more money on that ad. And so there, yeah. there's an efficiency in the market that says, you know, the, the people that are, are, are doing the best job converting those customers are going to be the ones that are going to be able to spend the higher marginal cost to, to get the next uh, marginal prospect in. And so I, I, I think you, you want to you definitely want to increase the top of your funnel, but ideally the way that you do it is because you've got a very good idea about, you know, who you're bringing into your funnel, how you're going to monetize those. And you're, you're a little bit more precise about how you build that funnel versus just the, you know, the, the shotgun spray out into the world. It's interesting because a lot of, a lot of organizations will set up a structure that they think is going to be conducive to bringing customers in and don't necessarily put their focus on what are the key principles we need to be focused on to entice and answer the question that customers are asking as to why would I deal do business with you? What is it about your organization that in that intrigues me that I want to know more about? Because a lot of the organizations just go out and say, hey, we've got the best product, we've got the best service, we've got the best widget, insert, you know, comment there. And they just think that's going to do the do the do the deal and, and it's not. Um, so there's a few things I want to cover on on this. One is um, ideas around structure um, that that you can set up so that we can be more effective in how we go to market and also how we actually attract customers, but also then talk about some of the key principles around sales that you see um, working today and will continue to work into the future. So firstly, we'll part the sales principles for a sec. Um, from a structural point of view, what have you, because you mentioned before you you, you had to um, offload a few people, um, which wasn't necessarily palatable, but obviously we've gone on and, and continue to grow. What are some key, I guess, principles or lessons around structure that enables us as an organization to be more, I guess, more efficient, more effective? Yeah, I think, you know, it's always going to depend a little bit on, you know, who you're selling to, uh, you know, how much your product, you know, uh, how much, you know, revenue and individual sale is, you know, what sort of margin structure you get is, is going to depend uh, on a lot of these things. I think at the, if we were to start at the small end, um, what I'm seeing is that 
the sort of that high high efficiency call center actually still works pretty well um, where you know you have these direct response fun funnels on thing on places like Facebook or you know or even even AdWords still where you know you've got a strong call to action somebody does a thing you call them almost immediately and they're in a business where they answer their phone uh, is an important part of that too and then you've got you know, uh, sort of an initial offer that is closable in one call, and then you sort of send somebody down an upsell path. Like, I've seen those be still very effective today. I mean, I think, okay. you know, we've sort of derided the the end of the phone, but like there are definitely, there are definitely cases in industries where that works. So that that's sort of one end of it, which is like the highly efficient call center, which is backed by pretty smart and targeted, um, you know, quantitative uh, folks that are advertising effectively mm -hmm. and, and driving right to a funnel. On the far other end of that would be more of an account-based marketing approach where you've got groups that are uh, divided up into vertical specialties where you are, um, you know, some people talk about, you know, kind of choosing your customers, but you've got a relatively small list of people that you know are the best prospects in the world for this and that you can invest a lot of time and energy um, in selling to these customers in a very thoughtful and, and specific way across a large number of people on a buying committee, because you know that what you do is 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 going to make a lot of sense for them in the end. That's that's kind of the the other extreme that I've seen work. There, there you know, there's all sorts of um, there's all sorts of permutations of that in between. But you know, the 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 two barbells are the, those are the ones that I've seen um, recently be you know continue to be effective. And as, as all part of that, as always, we have to be good, responsible business people and be conscious of things like cost to serve and and the return. Excuse me, the return on that cost, etc. Um, so there, there's there's two ends of the spectrum that you can they can look at and everything in between. So it's about structuring the business that you think is going to um, serve you well to provide the level of service you want to be known for in the marketplace um, and test and measure that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think it's also very important, you know, market size is, is key that, you know, on the low end, you really need a massive market uh, to be able to, to make those strategies scale. And on the high end, you know, you may not need that many people. And, and yeah. so you just really have to sort of think about like, what type of pool are you, are you fishing in? Yeah, absolutely. Which leads us to the next point, which is uh, talking about principles, sales principles. Um and a lot of people listening to this have been in sales for many years. A lot of people listening to this have, have brand new to sales uh, and looking for the difference that for them can make all the difference. So from your experience and what you're finding now, what are some key principles that we should be considering um, following today that gives us every opportunity of being uh, being successful? Yeah, there's there's a couple that a couple that I like. the The first one is, to never allow unforced errors in your sales process. And, and what do I mean by that? So if you think about tennis, um, you know, if, uh, you know, if, if, uh, you know, Djokovic, you know, not, you know, whales a serve at you 150 miles an hour and you miss it, like that's a, uh, that's a forced error. You, you probably weren't going to get that over the net. Uh, but you, you know, if you get an easy, yeah, <laughs> that's right. If you get an easy lob, you know, you, you might, you should probably hit that back over and, and play that, you know, if you'd knock it into the net, that would be considered a, you know, uh, an unforced error. And I think in, in sales, you want to think about it in a similar way where you want to really try to avoid the unforced errors and the unforced errors might be, you know, you didn't follow up with somebody um, at all, or you didn't follow up with them appropriately or didn't follow up 
you know, the, you know, the appropriate number of times with the right information. Um, you know, you maybe didn't prepare as well as you could have for a sales call. So you didn't ask good questions. Uh, you maybe didn't, uh, you know, leverage other parts of your organization. Uh, you know, you didn't ask for the order at the appropriate time. Like there, there's all these things that I think you, you, you can control and, uh, you know, prospects are so precious these days. I mean, they've always been, but I think, you know, even more so as, as, you know, as interest rates go up and the, mm -hmm. the economy starts to tighten a little bit, it's like, you just can't avoid that. You just, or you, you can't afford that in your sales process. You just got to do everything that you can. Like if you lose because a competitor ran a better process than you and they had a better fit for the customer, your customer lost all their budget or whatever, like those are all good, you know, fine. You know, you don't want to lose, but those are fine reasons to lose or, or okay, you know, acceptable reasons to lose. But if you lost because, oh man, I got busy with these five other prospects and, and then I just dropped the ball on I this forgot. one. That's a terrible terrible reason to lose. And, you know, and we see this in sales, right? We see the boom bust cycle of, you know, you stop prospecting because you're super busy. And then, you know, six months later, you got nothing in your pipeline pipeline because you stopped prospecting. you know, that, that, that these yeah. things have, have been happening since, you know, since the beginning of, uh, beginning of sales. So I think that that's the first one. The second one is, I think you, you want to create as much time as possible to do, uh, you know, that the, sort of the highest and best use of your time as a salesperson, in my opinion, is understanding what the customer's business situation is and asking smart questions to uncover that situation and try to lead the customer to a place where, you know, they can get better outcomes for their business by, you know, buying your, your company's product or service. And I think that you know, the, the best salespeople in my experience tend to be the ones that ask the best questions also that have good follow-up, but like tend to be the ones that ask the best questions and the ones that ask the best questions are the ones that tend to be curious and, uh, and really want to help and, and are interested in that, you know, it doesn't tend to be the, you know, the ones that are, are just trying to push through a, a bad deal at all costs. I mean, it works in some environments for some period of time, but, you know, generally for higher stakes selling, that doesn't, that doesn't work particularly well. And so I think if you can, if you can create the space where a good portion of your time is spent with those customers, asking the good questions and having the real conversations, you know, that, that to me is, uh, is a really big step towards, you know, toward, towards being a, a successful salesperson. And for a lot of salespeople, that is counterintuitive because a lot of the sales training, even in 2023, is still geared around take your product, take your service, go out and talk about features, talk about this product, how this product's going to help. What we're talking about is, hey, and, and I say this respectfully, forget about your products, go out and be curious and ask your customers, your prospective customers, what is the problem they have? What is the problem they want to solve? Do they want to solve the problem? But even before that, what sort of research can you do about the industry or their particular marketplace that might actually end up being an insight you can provide to that particular customer, which is then followed up by a question that starts to create a high level of credibility in the minds of the customer. Because one of the key things a lot of sales organizations are continuing to grapple with, and you'd see this in a really highly competitive world, is they try to create like for like, and they try to commoditize as much as they possibly can. So if you have a spreadsheet where we can put some price points in and I can compare you with, XYZ organization, then I'm doing my job. We right. need to make it really hard to be able to do that, which means we have to bring something different to the table. And as simple as it might sound, curiosity can be a big difference. Yeah. I mean, we even, um, you know, we've, we've used the sales 
methodology here from time to time called selling through curiosity, which is, you know, I think it, that that's a, that's a key part of it. And, uh, yeah. And I think, you know, just be a good business person, you know, and understand how a financial statement works, understand the balance sheet, understand cash flows, understand, you know, some of the constraints that your customer might face in, in his or her industry. Like a, a lot of salespeople don't necessarily do that, but the best ones are the ones that are ultimately at the end of the day going to be able to draw a very clear line from what you're product or service does to how the bottom line business benefit um, to that business. And it's hard to really get there if you don't really understand business. And so that's, you know, that, that may not be at the, at the top of everybody's list, but I would certainly encourage that. Which means as an organization, we need to have sales leaders and directors and maybe even owners, depending on the size of the business, focusing more about how do we how do we solve the problems in the marketplace not making it all about how good our product is yeah that's right yeah i mean because the you know the market changes customer needs change you know your 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 product and service has to adapt to it and i've i've had quite a few people that have worked for me over the years and you know not certainly not everybody has to go get an mba Um, i'm not advocating that but i've had a lot of folks that have worked for me that have had aspirations towards higher management a lot of what we've worked on is just basic financial acumen and like why is this important like let's look at the financial statement and like tell me what you see uh you know kind of stuff and um, it it can can make a can make a real difference absolutely so Joel, when you when you talk about those those key principles and you have the pressure of the day-to-day activity and I guess the performance that needs to be delivered, um, what what would you say to sales leaders and teams that are under pressure to perform, under pressure to get the short-term results? Um, and they and they turn around and said, mate, I just don't have time to do all this research. I'm under pump. I've got to sell stuff. That's all nice to have. I don't, I, I, I got to get my, I got to hit my number. Um, I have a perspective on that, but I'd love to know from your perspective, your experience, um, how would you answer that? What sort of advice or guidance would you give somebody in that sort of predicament? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I mean, I think if you're, if you're the person in that predicament, I think you got to ask yourself, you know, okay, well, maybe now it's time to just be heads down and just not do any of this stuff. But I think you got to wonder for how long that has to persist. And if it's like that every quarter, you know, or at the end of every month, and you never really get time for yourself, then I think you got to ask, like, whether that's the right organization for you in the long term, because how are you going to get better if all you're ever doing is just, you know, trying to focus on the deal at hand? Now, there's certainly there's a uh, there's a learning that comes from that. And, uh, you know, and, and oftentimes the folks that get promoted are the ones that have the best results, but, you know, you've got to, you got to be, um, you know, as Stephen Covey would say, sharpening the saw and, uh, you know, and, and how, how are you going to figure out how to do that over time? So I think that if you're, if you're a, if you're a rep, you know, or a frontline sales manager or something, I think that's a question you got to ask yourself is like, is this the right company for me? Is there another company I can find where, you know, not only can I have a focus on results, but I also get time to, to become a better professional um, and, and grow in my career. And if you're, if you're an executive, um, I think you got to ask yourself, like, how do I, how do I create those conditions um, such that we're not always, um, you know, it's not always a fire drill at the end of the, at the end of the quarter. Is it like, do I have to, you know, strike a different bargain with my CEO or with the board of directors about what the plan really should be this year? Um, Mm -hmm. Do we need to think differently about um, the investments we're making in training or enablement? Or, you know, do we need to, you know, ask some really difficult questions about, 
what we're doing from a product perspective or a service perspective that's putting us into the situation where we're always, you know, we're always struggling for our lives uh, to, to hit our numbers. Um, uh, I mean, these, these are difficult conversations and, you know, and especially in tech where a lot of us are having these conversations right now, cause it's tough out there right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I think those are some of the questions you can ask. I mean, a lot of times we, you know, we create, um, uh, we create these conditions ourselves. Uh, and I've, my old, uh, coach, this guy, Jerry Colonna used to have this saying, it was like, you know, how are you complicit in creating the conditions that you say you don't want? <laughs> and I think as, uh, as leaders, we, we off, we often do that. And sometimes you just, you know, I got to take a hard look in the mirror on that stuff. We do, we do. And it's not going to get, uh, it's not going to get any easier. Cause as not anytime before, soon, I don't think. <laughs> Which means we have to learn how to how do we differentiate ourselves and what what's going to make us different from every other competitor out there that's trying to flog the same thing, right? And if if they're all selling their products and saying how good it is and and not focusing on the business problem you're trying to solve, then you can actually very quickly differentiate yourself. It may mean though that your sales cycle may be a little bit longer, which means you're going to have to have the courage to have those conversations internally. But I guarantee that the the results will be worth it because they're more likely to be sustainable in terms of um, longevity around those results. So moving moving into twenty twenty four, I know you're off to write a book, which is which is fantastic. Um, if you put your uh, the what is it called the crystal not the crystal glasses the um what's the seeing the future the wall. The crystal ball, that's it. Yeah. Do you guys have those in Australia or is that just an American thing? No, nah, we do have we do have yeah. crystal balls. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot right. of people that, that completely live all the time under the guise of a crystal ball. Um what do you what are you seeing in the next in the next twelve months? I know we've always talked about a little bit about the I guess the interest rate challenges and stuff like that, but sales sales is gonna continue to evolve. Sales is gonna mm-hmm. continue to happen. Um sales is gonna continue to be what makes the world go around. Um what what do you and I'm going to ask this question from the context of what are you looking forward to? What what do you see as some positive things happening in the next uh, next little while, maybe the next twelve months that salespeople and sales leaders can can grab hold of? Yeah, I think we're going through a little bit of um, uh, I don't know. You could almost call it like the AI head fake, where you know these large language models are so are, are so. I think um, surprisingly powerful to people that you know I think everybody thought that you know, everything's now changed and people have started to use these things in ways that are maybe not the best ways. And like, we're still trying to sort of figure it out. Like what, like what is really the highest and best use of, of this technology and how can we, um, you know, how can we really harness this to make everything better versus just create a bunch of spam and hallucinations and, and stupid crap that now somebody else has to fight. There's a funny comic where there's a person who is uh, on one end is like saying like, write me a two page email about uh, how great this product is. And then on the other end, someone gets the email and says like, summarize this email in a paragraph, <laughs> you know, we're, and we're, we're in a little bit of that stage right now where um you know, there's, uh, you know, it's sort of the measures and the countermeasures are all going out. But I, I think we will get to a place, you know, in, I, you know, I, I bet sometime in 2024, because th- these things are only, you know, these, these models will never be worse, they're only getting better, where, yeah. I, you know, some of the, some of the use cases will become a little bit more obvious, we'll start to figure some things out, it'll become a little bit more practical, um, a little bit more systematized, and we'll start to get some of the real productivity benefits of these things um, that will, you know, I think benefit, uh, 
you know, the best people as well as folks that are kind of learning and, and getting better. We're, we're still a little bit in that awkward stage right now um, yeah. where there's a lot of noise, but I, I, I see us getting out of that relatively quickly and, uh, and some real benefits accruing to the people that are investing in, uh, in these types of tools. And I reckon AI is going to be, I believe, is an enabler rather than a, dis- a disabler. Um, if used, as we said before, if used for good, not for evil. Yeah. Now, as we wrap up, it would be remiss of me um, to not mention your podcast, Hard Sell. Um, yep. Now, just tell us a little bit about that. Is it? It is a. It is all about hard selling, or is it the antithesis of hard sell? Yes, if you know me, my my purpose is to grind you into oblivion and make you <laughs> sign the thing. So, uh, yeah, um, no, it's uh, you know, it, yeah, it's a little bit of a joke. Um, uh, it's more about you know uh, the idea is selling is hard versus uh, you know uh, hard hard selling, and so I get um, you know, folks that I get you know, since I'm a a tech entrepreneur, I tend to get you know other um, tech CEOs on the podcast that I know that I think are doing interesting things in the space. I'll get. Um, you know, sales leaders, sometimes even, you know, for, you know, frontline managers or other people that are, um, you know, uh, either sales trainers or speakers or leaders, um, anybody that has sort of something interesting, I think, to, to say about um, selling and, and how it's working today. So, yes, we've we got, um, you know, we got a, a few seasons of it and uh, you can find it at, uh, you know, wherever you find podcasts or uh, yes, we forward slash podcast. Nice. Nice. So we'll put that in the show notes. So, um, last final thoughts, uh, anything we haven't topic, uh, covered in terms of topics, anything that's top of mind for you in relation to, well, entrepreneurship, uh, sales leadership, being a, a super famous global podcaster. Anyway, yeah, I don't, I don't, we have, I don't know if I've quite made it to that point yet. Um, I, Lex Friedman is not worried. I don't think about the hard sell at this point, <laughs> cutting into his listenership, but, uh, yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think, um, you know, the, this is, you know, I think a little bit of a time, um, as a salesperson to really, you know, think about what you're doing and there's, there are new tools that are coming available. There are new ways of doing things. The market's changing a lot and it's hard. I mean, it's a hard period because in these types of economic environments, you know, typically everybody's hunkering down and budgets shrink a little bit, but also, you know, when companies face adversity, that's often when they look for new solutions. And so uh, many great companies are often made, um, you know, through these times of, uh, of economic difficulty. So, you know, things might be a little bit more difficult, but, you know, it's a good time to kind of hunker down and persevere and figure some stuff out. And then, you know, you, when times are better again, you might find yourself in a, in a great position. Yeah. Perfect. Love it. Love it. So, uh, Joel, where can people get access to you? They want to learn a little bit more about you or, um, in fact, connect with you. What's the best place for them to do that? Um, yeah, probably the easiest place is uh, LinkedIn. Um, it's uh, just uh, linkedin.com forward slash uh, Joel Stevenson, GM, all one word. And um yeah. And, you know, we've got um, a lot of great content at Yes, We're About Sales, uh, yeswear.com forward slash blog. And uh, yeah, it was, probably, it was probably the best ways. Awesome. Mate, absolute pleasure. Thank you for um, spending some time on our Sunday evening all the way from Boston. It's uh, It's been a great conversation. And thanks again for being on the Exceptional Sales Letter podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. Cheers, mate.
Thank you for listening to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. I trust the information in this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional. And remember, please take the time to rate the show, subscribe to the show so other people can find it. But also, if I can help you, jump on my calendar, go to leadwithdarren.com and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.